Hello and welcome to Crypto Cafe with Randy Zuckerberg. I'm your host, Randy, and here in this cafe, we embrace newcomers and experts alike to all things innovative and groundbreaking in technology. And the biggest thing that everyone is talking about right now is AI. Uh, we are in the middle of a, a writer's strike in Hollywood that's all about AI. You can't step into any conference of any industry without hearing all about what's happening with artificial intelligence. And so luckily, in today's episode of Crypto Cafe, we have an incredible expert at the cutting edge of all things AI, Dr. Seth Dobrin, president of Responsible AI Institute. And fun fact, Seth was IBM's first ever, ever global Global Chief AI Officer. So we have the right person here to answer all of our questions and dive in. Dr. Seth Dobrin, welcome to the show today. Yeah, thanks for, for having me, Randy, and thanks for the very kind uh, introduction. Well, I I am as fascinated about this topic as everyone else is, and so I'm really delighted for the opportunity to, to be in conversation about this today. But first, Seth, let's get to know you a little bit. If we were in an actual cafe together, where would we be? What would we be drinking? Set the scene. Like, what does what your, your life look like? Oh, so we would be in a, in a coffee shop uh, having uh, Americano with a lot of espresso in it. And yes. uh, we would uh, probably be meeting somewhere in, in New York City. Amazing. Okay, now now you're talking, and and I am uh, saying hi to you actually from the middle of New York City right now from the SiriusXM uh, studios. So, Seth, tell us about your journey into AI. What was your light bulb moment that first attracted you to the space, and what were some of your first steps? Yeah. So so it's interesting. You know, I'm actually a human geneticist by by training. And most people kind of cock their head a little bit and say, well, how'd you wind up here? And, and if you go back to when I was in, in graduate school, it was towards the, the tail end of trying to get value from the Human Genome Project. Uh, we had tremendous amounts of data that we had no idea how to use or how to analyze. Uh, and we had to start using the tools and start building some of the tools that we use today for AI. So. There's, there's two programming languages that were developed back then uh, that are primarily birthed from uh, genetics as well as astrophysics. Uh, and, and those tools kind of led into the, the, the capabilities that we're, we're developing today. Uh, and then I, I went on after graduate school to stay in academics and, and apply those, those skills as well, uh, co-authoring one of the first papers using machine learning or, or AI, as we call it, in the field of, of genetics. And then I went on to some Fortune 500 companies, starting at Monsanto, where I was uh, leading the, their part of their R&D, uh, so their product development pipeline. And we started applying AI to make that pipeline more efficient, make uh, the products that are coming out of there better and, and more, more uh, higher quality for our customers. Uh, and then I went on from from that part of my my life at Monsanto to leading part of the digital transformation, or at least leading the the data and AI part of the digital transformation that Monsanto went through, applying what I did for the, the product development, so the science part of of the company, which is where I came from, to more business focused problems like how do we optimize supply chain, how do we interact better with our customers, how do we enable our customers to reduce the amount of inputs, so have a, a higher uh, level of environmental friendliness, 
while also getting better yield so that we can to try and feed the world. And, and from there, I went on to, to IBM to to kind of lead their their you know co-lead their digital transformation using the same tools, and also to help some of the world's largest companies figure out how do we implement AI, how do we get better value from 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 our our business, how do we interact better with our customers. And, and, you know, they were interested in talking to me because Monsanto transformation was one of the most successful digital transformations that happened at mm-hmm. that time. And that was, you know, 12, 15 years ago when, you know, what we when you hear about cloud, cloud was just was just being birthed for for enterprises. We were one of their first customers and, and starting to use all the new cool new tools and helping startups develop those. It's it's really exciting. I'm I'm curious, um, what were people kind of talking about and scared about with AI when you were first getting into the space, and like how have you seen that change over the years? Yeah, so that's a super interesting question. So you know when we when you first started applying these tools, you know people you know that were these tools were going to help because the goal was not to replace people at that time, and I think for the most part it's it's the same now. It's to help people do their job better. The AI would give people answers and they would say, well, this doesn't match what, what my answer is, or this doesn't match what, what my team's answer is, so it must be wrong. And the response to that was always, well, how do you know that you're right and the AI is wrong? Mm. Uh, and and you know, so we did some, some tests kind of demonstrating the difference between humans uh, amongst themselves getting these answers and, and the AI. And even if the AI was a little bit wrong, it was almost always precise. And so if you think about, you know, throwing darts or shooting arrows at a bullseye, at a bullseye precise means that they're always clustered together. Uh, and accurate means that you're hitting the bullseye. Uh, and if you're more precise than you are accurate with machine learning, it's very easy to adjust the answers so that they're precise and accurate. And so, and, and humans are not, right? We did some tests and there's typically a huge gap between what individuals would, would score something or decide something. Uh, and each other. And then sometimes, in some cases, within a human, there's even big differences. And so that was the big challenge overall, was convincing humans that AI makes just as good or sometimes better decisions than them, or recommends them, because the goal was always to recommend them to the humans, and ultimately the humans make that decision. And that's what got me into this whole thought process of what I talk about uh, very often is human-centric AI and responsible AI really thinking about upfront before you start implementing AI, who's the human that's going to be using the AI and who's, who's the human that's going to be impacted by it. And those are more often than not two different groups of people. So for instance, if you're getting a mortgage, uh, the people using the AI are, are the underwriters and, and the mortgage brokers, uh, the people who are, are you know, making the decisions and the people that are impacting it are, are you and I when we're applying for, for a mortgage. Uh, and so really having that human focus and understanding that's how it's going to be used and also focusing on the responsibility. Are we using, you know, a technology? So AI is essentially just math and, and computer science combined to help make better decisions. Can we explain the math that made that recommendation to the underwriter? So as humans, we can get an explanation as to why we did or didn't get the mortgage. And more often than not, we're really only concerned when we didn't about how it came to a decision. Uh, and, and so that's really what, what led me down this vein when we talk about, you know, and my, my drive to really push the industry while I was at, at IBM to focus on the humans and to make sure that these are built responsibly up front 
instead of kind of thinking about it when it's done and there's a problem. Mm. It's so fascinating. Um, Seth, before we dive more into kind of what what day-to-day looks like at the Responsible AI Institute, maybe you can just give us a quick lay of the land of what's going on now with the AI race. What's exciting you? What's making you fearful? Who do you have your eye on? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, as of uh, November of last year, or as far as, you know, the general public was concerned, probably around January, the field of AI has dramatically changed. And so, you know, I often talk about, you know, old school AI, which is pre-2023, and and the new school AI, what we think about is generative AI. And that's really the technology that underlies chat GPT, which I think, you know, most everyone in the world is, is aware of today. So there's a huge shift towards leveraging these generative AI models. ChatGPT is what's called the large language model. And there's about 50 different versions or 50 different you know, models that exist today, uh, both from OpenAI as well as a whole lot of other companies and, and out in the open source. And you're even starting to see companies develop their own uh, large language models or generative AI systems uh, that are customized for them, that are proprietary to them. And the cost for the developing these has reduced an incredible amount over over the last four or five months uh, to the point where it's, you know, thousands of dollars instead of hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars or tens of millions of dollars to, to develop these. Uh, and, and, you know, looking back, getting into the problems, these technologies were actually starting to surface around 2018, so about five years ago. Uh, and they were, for the most part, limited only to the the data science or, or those people we call what we call people who are building AI, uh, the data scientists and the software developers uh, in what are called closed betas, meaning you had to get approved in order to have access to these tools. Uh, and these tools we knew had problems, uh, even leading up into the release of 2023. And these problems revolved around data privacy. So, you know, get having data surface that it shouldn't surface. So personal data is often what we're talking about. So, you know, social security numbers, uh, addresses, things that, you know, were hacked that are published on on platforms like Reddit, which is essentially a a blogging or or actually a think of it as a social media platform that's a little more than that, but it's a good way to learn about, uh, you know, how humans converse. Um, And then, you know, with these problems persisted for a while, and there's even problems with these models essentially making up answers. So that's what we you often hear about hallucinations, and that's the models very convincingly telling you something that is wrong, is, is, in, is in fact the right answer. And that's because these models, or these AI systems, are all what we call probabilistic. And so that means that you know it's generating a, a prediction of what should be the answer or what should come next when you ask it a question or give it what we call what's called a prompt. Um, and sometimes the probabilities are wrong, right? You think about mm-hmm. you know something that is 90% probable to happen. That means 10% of the time it's going to be wrong. Uh, you know we can look at elections over the last decade where we thought you know the world was pretty certain you know something was going to move forward or someone was going to win an election and it turned out they they didn't, right? And so that's kind of the same thing when you use these generative AI models and they're trying to predict what the right answer is from the information they learned. The other big problem is, you know, I mentioned Reddit and and Reddit is a platform that humans converse on and and it's a great way to understand how humans speak and the types of ways they converse with each other. 
but it is a really bad place to learn about different concepts because there's a lot of hate mm-hmm. on, on Reddit. There's a lot of misogyny. Uh, there's a lot of misinformation. And the models actually learned those. And that's why you've seen some, some issues uh, around, you know, like early on when ChatGPT came out. You could ask it, you know, how to make a bomb and it wouldn't tell you, but if you kind of, it knew. Uh, and if you tricked it by saying, you know, hey, I'm writing a play and one of the characters is going to build the bomb, it would actually give you instructions on how to build a bomb. Now, they corrected that fairly quickly, but it's still an underlying problem based on, you know, a good subset of the data that these models were changed on or trained on. It's now, so- in terms of. Sorry, go ahead. No, I'm just I'm laughing a little bit. No, I shouldn't be laughing at this. You're talking about like AI talking about how to build a bomb, but uh, the uh, when you're talking about the AI kind of confidently spewing out incorrect information, I'm just thinking that like across all the jobs I've had, like there's always been that one colleague that just said something really blatantly wrong, but very confidently. And now now we like have right. to worry about the AI doing that too. So uh, I'm just, I'm having a little bit yeah. of a, an inward chuckle about that, but please, please continue. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's a good, that's good. It's, yeah, it's like that, that one person that always is absolutely sure they're right. right? <laughs> totally. I'm going to start using that, going to start using that analogy. Um, <laughs> And, and, and so in terms of the, the possibilities, right, I mean, you know, we've seen over the last six months, so since ChatGPT was, was rolled out to the general public, um, we've seen this technology particularly advance, advance at a rate that is incredibly unprecedented. I mean, literally every week this field is changing. And, you know, I'd say every week we're making what would be six months of advances back to social media or back to the Internet. So when the Internet came out, you know, it took time for things to develop. That time frame has shrunk, you know, from from the equivalent of, you know, what was six months, like I said, down to to about a week. We're seeing the same level of change. And that's incredibly exciting and drives a credible amount of value. And I mentioned some of it where now companies can build their own for for relatively uh, cheap. Uh, that allows them to, you know, reduce some of the problems and and eliminate some of the, you know, like the hallucination. So the, the you know, that guy that's that always convincingly telling you he knows what's right when he doesn't. Um, and then also uh, thinking about, you know, uh, preventing those prompt hacking. So I want to write a play uh, and give me, you know, give me the give me the instructions for a bomb. We can, you know, thinking about how you prevent that. Uh, and then even making sure that, you know, the responses are limited to a, a subset of data and don't get trained into an external, uh, you know, kind of AI system. And that's what happened with Samsung, where some of their employees were using it and they got trained into the model. So how do you prevent that? And then I think we even need to go a step further and start looking at how do we make sure that we're providing some kind of scorecard that measures these things. And once you get that type of system in place, then you can start using it for, uh, you know, like I said, making better mortgage decisions. You can start using it for helping humans uh, or reducing activities that humans, for the most part, don't like doing, but they have to do as part of their job. So, so a good example of this is, you know, like uh, information security. So cybersecurity professionals, when they're in an, an organization, they often spend a lot of their time helping the employees fix problems or prevent problems from having it happening, that and they don't want to do this. So we're not even eliminating jobs in this. We're not eliminating jobs in this case. But you know, letting the the generative AI or the chat some version of a chat GPT help the humans, the employees, 
resolve those problems on their own for the most part, and then even proactively reach out to other humans that may or may not know they've had the same problem. A good example of that is, you know, phishing when, you know, someone convinces you to give them your password or sign into something. And so things like that are, are the opportunity. And then even looking further out, these are generative systems and today they're focused mostly on languages and images. But if you think about chemistry, chemistry is essentially a language. And so these technologies are really good at identifying new molecules uh, that are completely different than anything a human would have developed based on, on knowledge. Uh, genetics is a language. And so how this technology could help really better understand genetics and even help us develop treatments for, for problems. So, you know, you see, you know, you see these, uh, you know, auto, these immune uh, immuno treatments for cancer and for autoimmune diseases and things like that. Generative AI could help that make that more effective with, you know, with fewer side effects. And so most anything can be thought of, you know, not most anything, but there's a lot of things that can be thought of as language that the technology can can help us with today. Uh, but that also leads to some, some new problems around copyright infringement on the chaining of data, how the data was acquired. So, you know, I think the EU has, uh, has accused OpenAI of acquiring the data for training their model in a way that's against their laws. So there's a law called GDPR, that's a data protection law, and, and there's, the EU is convinced that OpenAI trained their model without adhering to the principles of GDPR. So these, these you need to be careful and make sure you're using data that's acquired appropriately and, and aligned to both the company stance as well as uh, as well as any laws that exist. I know a lot of uh, uh, talk right now is around the writer's strike and artists. And if you were an artist right now, would you be excited about AI or would you be angry or a little of both? You know, I would actually be very, very excited um, because, you know, as I mentioned earlier, like with the lending decision, right, it, it can help us make better, more informed decisions. And, and similarly for art, I think it's, you know, art has a lot of emotion in it, right? There's a lot of human emotion that surfaces through art. And at least for the foreseeable future, AI cannot really embrace that emotion the way a human can. And in fact, there's an artist who's, who's a friend of mine named Refik Anadol. Uh, he's a Turkish artist, artist, and he's been using, he's one of the, the leaders in the space and has been using AI for, for many, many years to generate new art. And in fact, he did something with the, the MoMA in New York, right, right down the street from where you're sitting right now, Randy, where he took the entire collection. And from that collection, he created art pieces that would have been created by a group of artists that have similar kind of styles. Right. And so he generated art from this art uh, that had emotion uh, that was conveyed through him and his team. Uh, and also respected the rights of those artists because he got permission from the moment to do it. Even though the data is public, he still did it in partnership with them. So he was able to take data, acquire it appropriately, and turn it into just really beautiful emotional pieces. And oftentimes they move, right? So it's mm. like something that never would have been created by these artists. And so there's a lot of opportunity. Do I think journalists will be replaced by AI? No. I think AI will help them develop better stories to start with, and then they can add their own human perspective on it, really with the writer strike. I mean, I understand what they're concerned about, uh, but I think uh, they don't understand really, really how this technology should be used. So you shouldn't use it directly because, you know, you're still going to get that guy that 
think saying things you know that are completely wrong very confidently. So journalists need to to vet that, and then they need to take that and put it into a language that is a little bit more human and reflect them and their the 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 the, the journal that they're or paper or whatever that they're writing for, and put it in the right style. So. I think it's it's a partnership. It's not necessarily a replacement. Again, at least for the foreseeable future. Absolutely, Seth. In our in our final few moments, I um I know that several people in the industry signed kind of a pause on AI letter a few months ago. Um, maybe you can talk a little bit about that because why do we even need a pause? Have we lost control of the AI? Like, what what do you think needs to happen now? Yeah, I think that's been a topic of discussion almost every time since I've, I've spoken with, with a journalist or a podcast or something like that since that letter came out. I guess first and foremost, I did not sign sign the letter. Uh, I think uh, there are some really good points in that letter, but I think there's also some hyperbole or, mm-hmm. you know, kind of overreactions in, in that letter, as well as some of the people that put it out, quite honestly, were self-serving. Yep. Uh, you know, some of those people were people that created this technology and that all of a sudden they're worried about it. Well, if you're worried about it, you probably shouldn't have released it. <laughs> totally. Uh, and so so there were there were some underlying just issues with it, um, you know, and I think a pause is absolutely the wrong thing to do now that this is out in the wild for, for a few reasons. One is there is no entity to enforce that pause. So how, how, how do we enforce a pause? You know, we companies, you know, often or, or organizations will say they're going to do something and then they sort of do or just don't. Uh, and so how would we make sure that there is truly a pause and we're not giving someone who's who's not pausing an advantage over the rest? The other is the world is not going to stop around us. And right now, uh, you know, the, the, the U.S. as well as, you know, kind of the Western alliance, uh, if you will, are, are actually ahead of the rest of the world. And so why would we give the rest of the world a chance mm. to to catch up to us? I mean, this is, Good point. you know, AI has a lot of potential, but there's also a lot of opportunity for bad actors to use it. And so it's, it's essentially an arms race right now. And we need to make sure that we stay ahead in that arms race so that we can can protect you know, the world is as, as we know it and, and we think about. Um, and, and then, you know, even from a cybersecurity perspective, right? So hackers uh, are using this technology and will continue to use this technology. And so we need to stay ahead of them. Uh, and then, you know, there's a tremendous amount of opportunity. Like I said, why are we going to hamper this opportunity? Why are we going to slow down the benefit to, to society and, and think about ways that we can help society? Uh, make it more inclusive, right? So there's a, a lot, some issues with some of the initial models that came out where they all they could do were Western languages. They couldn't do any other, you know, Cyrillic or Arabic or, or you know, let alone African-based languages. And so making sure that we, you know, reduce the digital divide. So, you know, we often think about the digital divide as north of the equator versus south of the equator. So how do we make sure that we're advancing this technology in a way that is fair to the world, to the citizens of the world, without imposing Western Western values necessarily on everyone else. So I think the, the pause would have hampered all of those things, would have reinforced the digital divide, would have reinforced it's not an inclusive technology to, to everyone in the world. And instead of that open letter, I, I think it's really important for us to start thinking about how do we develop you know, how do we develop expert-based regulatory bodies, such as the FDA, the CDC, the USDA, the EPA, the FTC, 
you know, the FAA, the European and another country version of those. Those are driven by experts that work with policymakers. And again, this technology is changing every week. Policymakers will never be able to keep up with that. Even experts struggle to keep up with that, but they're the ones that should be making decisions or driving policies or, or like the FDA does, right? They make recommendations of what should be done, and they're the ultimate arbitrators of They've been given that power by the U.S. Congress. There are similar bodies in Europe. There are similar bodies in, in Russia and other parts of the world. And so we need really the focus should be on developing, you know, expert bodies to, to regulate, you know, to drive the regulation and policy around around this technology. Absolutely. Seth, thank you for such an informative conversation. I could talk to you for hours. Uh, where can our listeners go to keep up with everything you're working on at, at the Responsible AI Institute? Yeah, so they can go to LinkedIn. So the Responsible AI Institute is on LinkedIn, and I'm on LinkedIn. So just S. Dobrin is, is, is my kind of, if you do LinkedIn slash you know, in and S. Dobrin, you'll, you'll find me. Uh, and, and I think, you know, the Responsible AI Institute is really focused on making sure that this technology, any AI technology or automated, you know, uh, automated technology that especially impacts the health, wealth, and livelihood of a human is, is built in a responsible way that you can measure the level of responsible. So it's a quantitative uh, measure of how responsibly an AI system is being developed. And that's the complete focus of the Responsible AI Institute, and it's responsible.ai. And anyone can become a member, and, you know, it's a membership-based organization that's funded by corporate corporations that become members. But any individual can become a member as well. Amazing. Dr. Seth Dobrin, president of Responsible AI Institute and IBM's first-ever global chief AI officer, thank you so much for joining me today. So much to think about, and uh, I I feel more relieved than ever that we have someone like you on the forefront thinking about the ethics uh, of how to do AI correctly. So thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Randy. It was a really uh, enjoyable conversation with some insightful questions, so thank you for that. Wonderful. That was Dr. Seth Dobrin, president of Responsible AI Institute. As you can see, uh, there's a whole lot uh, that we can talk about with AI from disruption in industry to the arts to cybersecurity and the global arms race. And uh, obviously, a lot of work needs to be done in AI, but it's, uh, it's really exciting to have thought leaders like Seth on the forefront here on the podcast. Thanks for joining me for this week's episode of Crypto Cafe with Randy Zuckerberg. I'm your host, Randy, and uh, please join me again next week when we have an all-new episode.